0: Absolutely unnecessary, unnecessary. But please stay standing for just a moment. Don't sit down yet, don't sit down yet. Because uh, I wanna take a moment before we do anything else and I wanna honor what God is doing in this house. And what God is doing in this house is first of all, he he has his hand on this place and it's very obvious we know that it takes the hand of God for a great move of God to happen, but it also takes hard work on behalf of incredible leaders. And so can we, for a moment, please honor our pastors, Pastor Scott and Jan Obrimski. Come on, show them some appreciation. I had dinner with Pastor Scott last night and... I told him that in, in addition to the word that I felt like God gave me uh, out of scripture today, I really just felt like the Lord put a, a word on my heart for this house specifically. And it's, it's this, that this is a house of humility. I really, I look, at, I look at this church and I see a house of humility and maybe you're visiting, it's your first time, or maybe you're watching, you're joining us online or watching a rebroadcast of this. This is a house of humility. And one thing we see in scripture is that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And because this is a house of humility, your leaders are operating in humility from top to bottom all the way across what I really believe is that God is going to continue to give an unusual measure of grace to this church. In a season where churches are not receiving grace from the community, I believe there will be grace on this church. I believe God will do more in the future than he's done up to this point. And I really believe it's going to start with a humble heart of leadership. So can we please one more time, make some noise for the whole leadership team, your pastoral staff, worship team, volunteers. It doesn't happen without a humble heart. And I'm so grateful that I get to be here with you today. You all can have a seat in the presence of the Lord today, and I, I really do love this house. Uh, this is a, a special place for me because uh, before before this place was renovated, before it looked like it does, um, my uncle, Pastor Roger Horn, he was the pastor of this this building. For for many years, and we would play hide and seek in this building. Like I'm talking in the hallways, in this auditorium. I have army crawled across this auditorium multiple times, like playing hide and seek and underground church and different things. And we put holes in the walls and all of those things. So Uncle Raj, I am sorry um, for all of the damage that we did to the building when you were <laughs> overseeing everything. But um, it is beautiful and it really is special to see what God has done and is doing in this house. This is not normal. This is unique, this is special, and I'm just glad that we get to be a part of it today, and I'm excited to get into God's words. So if you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn it on and turn with us to Acts chapter 16. If you've got a physical Bible with real paper, with pages, um, you're going to get a bigger mansion in heaven, okay? That is not in the Bible, but I do think that it's biblical, okay? So yeah, make sure that you've got your, your physical Bible with you next time you come in. Maybe you'll, you'll add a room onto your mansion in heaven, or a, a, a crown will be a little bigger. But uh, we're gonna jump into the word in just a moment. But as Pastor Scott said, my family and I, we just wrapped up about a four year season of being the district youth directors for the Southern Missouri District of the Assemblies of God. And just recently stepped into the role of a national directors of student discipleship for the AG there in Springfield. and so. It is a huge honor getting to serve the church in that way. And as pastor said, we're heading out tonight to go preach a youth camp this week. And then next Monday, we start a national youth conference for the Assemblies of God. We'll host over 8,000 students and leaders and parents at this conference. And so we need your prayers. We need God to go before us uh, in a mighty way. But uh, we're excited to get to be a part of what God is doing. And I don't do this alone. I've got the greatest family in the world. And so we're gonna put a picture of my family up there And uh, sitting next to me is my greatest friend in the world. My wife, Lauren, she is my best friend. She also reminds me what day it is, where I'm supposed to be, what I'm supposed to be doing. Uh, Tells me what outfits look atrocious, go back upstairs and change, that kind of a thing. But uh, she's my greatest friend, my greatest ally. I love her so very much. And uh, she really is uh, the superstar of our household. And then right there in the middle, that is my son, Jude. There in the denim jacket. And that kid is adorable, but he knows he's adorable. That's the problem. And so uh, he is using it to his advantage, but I really am proud of him. He's five years old and he already has a sensitivity to the things of the Lord and to the voice of the Holy Spirit. So it's been really cool to see that growing and developing in him. And then there on my wife's lap is, Our daughter, Quinn, she is 19 months old and she has me wrapped around her finger and anything she wants, the answer is yes. And if I can't afford it, I'm gonna take money from Pastor Scott and then I'm gonna buy it, but I'm gonna make sure that she gets whatever she wants. And uh, we just, we love her so much. She's the joy of our household. And if you look at her feet there, she's got some ankle braces there on her feet. And uh, she's dealing with what's called hypermobility. And basically what hypermobility means is that she's double jointed in many different areas of her body. And uh, she doesn't have the strength in her joints to walk yet, but we are believing that God is gonna heal her body. We are believing that she is gonna walk. because one thing we believe is that God does not change. In fact, the writer of Hebrews tells us that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So if God healed once, he can do it again because healing is not just something God does. A healer is who he is. And if God's gonna to do it for us. I believe he can do it for you, but I believe God still heals and he still moves because he's a miracle working God. And so in just a little bit, we're going to have an opportunity to pray for miracles. And if you're in the room today and you need a miracle, today might be your day. God might move on your behalf in a way you never saw coming. So get ready for all that God is going to do. But uh, as I said, my family and I just love being a part of building the church and Our role in that oftentimes has me traveling and preaching and going to youth events and different things. And uh, sometimes the family comes with me and that's a lot of fun, it's awesome, but there are other times when I have to go by myself. And I was a while back on a trip driving across the the state of Kansas to go and preach across the state of Kansas to go and preach. And um, I always remind people that the Chiefs and the Royals play in Missouri, right? They don't play, but they play in Missouri. So I just have to remind that of people sometimes when we travel, they say, Kansas. I say, nope, Missouri. However, uh, Kansas is great too. I was driving across the state of Kansas and uh, I was on a two lane highway. And as I'm on this two lane highway, I could sense that the wind had really started to pick up. you could feel it in the car. And sure enough, I looked out my passenger side window and there was a sign right off the side of this two lane highway that said, caution, wind current. Like that's what the sign said. I was very encouraged. It said, caution, wind current. What that means is that there have probably been enough people blown off of the road that they had to put a sign letting you know you might get blown off the road today, just so you know, just warning you, don't say we didn't tell you, you might get blown off the road. Like It was like a deer crossing sign, as common as that right there on the side of the road. That was out my passenger window. I look out my driver's side window and about a quarter of a mile off of the road, out in this massive field, there is what's called a wind farm. Now a wind farm is a cluster of dozens of freestanding wind turbines. You've probably seen them if you've ever driven through Nebraska or Iowa, Kansas. They're massive windmills and they have these huge blades on them and they turn around and around as the wind blows through. Because the wind blows through, these things actually harvest the wind. And as they turn, they create friction inside this mechanism that is inside the turbine. And ultimately that is where we get this renewable resource of electricity. And experts believe that by the year 2030, about 20% of all of the electricity that we use is going to come from these wind farms. So I see that out the driver's side, out the passenger side, it's telling me, be careful, you might get blown off the road. And as I'm driving, I just have this thought drop in my heart. Isn't it interesting that the very same element that is seen as a risk right here on the road is seen as a resource right out here in the field? Isn't it interesting that the very same element that is a hazard right over here is actually a harvest right out here? Isn't it strange? That the very element that me, the traveler, is having to watch out for is the same element that the farmer is looking for, begging for, believing for, and even praying for in those moments. What's the difference? It's one word. Commitment. Commitment makes the difference. Because as the traveler, I've got places I'm trying to go things I'm trying to do, people that I'm trying to meet, things I need to accomplish. I'm just passing through. I'm not planning on spending time there. I'm not really concerned with what goes on there as long as I get there safely. I'm just passing through. That's me, the traveler, but the farmer, the farmer is planted there. They're not just passing through. The farmer is committed there. They are invested there. They're accountable for that land. They're responsible for what happens there and what that land produces. Commitment changes everything because commitment sees things differently. I wanna preach a message to you today. And the title of the message, if I had to give it a title is this, commitment sees it differently. So we are taking notes, you can write that down or type that in your phone. Commitment sees it differently. And the reason why I wanna preach this specific message is because I think that in our culture today we have serious commitment issues. Now, if you're a Kansas City Royals fan still, that means you must be pretty committed. Like if you're still a Royals fan, like for us Royals fans, I mean, we might lose hundred games this year, but I'm still gonna be a fan, all right? I'm committed there. But by and large, our culture has serious commitment issues. And it's not just the culture that has commitment issues, it's actually the church as well. Because right now, all across our nation and around the world, there's something going on called the deconstruction movement. Many of you are familiar with it. And what it is, it's a movement where people are beginning to deconstruct the faith that they have held onto for their entire lives. They are beginning to break down the beliefs that they know to be true in the deepest part of who they are. In fact, according to the American Bible Society and Barna Research, in people under the age of 30, only 4% of them currently have a biblical worldview right now at this very moment. In my parents' generation, it was over 60%. There are people walking away from their faith who grew up in church left and right. It's happening at an alarming rate. But the truth is not everyone will walk away from their faith. In fact, many people in this room who have been living for Jesus, you may never walk away from your faith. You may follow Jesus your entire life. So I don't think that a deconstruction of our faith is the only danger between us and what God has called us to do. I think a casually interested faith is what's gonna get in the way for many of us of what God has called us to do. Because what happens is when we are casually interested in the things of God, we start to see things as a threat that we should see as an opportunity. So what happens is we start to see giving of our finances, whether it be to missions or tithe and offering or the building project, what happens is we see that as nothing more than a threat to our bank account. What happens is we start to see giving of our time to building the church, to hosting a life group, to showing up to core night. We start to see those things as nothing more than a threat to our schedule. What also happens is we start to see giving of our gifts and our abilities to glorify God and build his kingdom as nothing more than a threat to our influence. But to those of us who are deeply committed, what happens is we know that to the degree that we give, it will be given back to us a good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over according to God's word, God's will and God's way because commitment sees things completely different. Commitment doesn't look and see a threat when showing up to church. It says, this is an opportunity to build the house of God. This is an opportunity to sow a seed. This is an opportunity to serve in the children's ministry or the youth ministry. This is an opportunity to be a part of something so much bigger than myself. Commitment changes everything because commitment sees it differently. We're in Acts chapter 16. We're gonna start reading in verse 22. Before we do, I wanna give you a little bit of context for this passage, because we're picking up a story that involves the apostle Paul and a few of his friends. And the Apostle Paul was formerly known as Saul of Tarsus. He was once a a Christian killer and he had an an incredible encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus. And he became the most influential Christ follower to ever walk the earth. Uh, He wrote over one third of the New Testament in our Bible. And during his ministry, the Apostle Paul would go on these extended missions trips called missionary journeys. And if you've been on a missions trip, this was a long missions trip, (laughs) extended. Like you were very tired of the food by the time you got back from this mission trip. It was long. But they would be building the church and pouring into leaders and the Apostle Paul was on his second missionary journey. They're building the church and- They had caused an uproar in the city because the Apostle Paul had cast a demon out of a girl who had been trafficked into slavery. And because the demon was cast out of her, she was unable to fortune tell, which is what she was doing to make money for her masters. And it was this huge debacle, and these masters began to throw the city into an uproar, and everyone was upset at Paul and his friend Silas. And that is where we pick up the story. In verse 22, it says this the crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. Upon receiving such orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, somebody say about midnight. About midnight, midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was a large violent earthquake and the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all of the prison doors flew open and everybody's chains came loose. The jailer woke up and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself, we are all here. The jailer called for lights. He rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your whole household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all of the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds and then immediately he and all of his family were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God. He and his whole family. When it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officers to the jailer with orders, release those men. The jailer told Paul, the magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave, go in peace. But Paul said to the officers, they beat us publicly without a trial, even though we were Roman citizens and threw us into prison. And now do they want to get rid of us quietly? No, let them come themselves and escort us out. The apostle Paul never wanted to go to Macedonia, which is the region where they were, never wanted to go to the city of Philippi, at least not in this season. He had plans to get there eventually, but this was not on his agenda. He had a course that was charted out for his missionary journey, and this particular journey did not involve Macedonia, it didn't involve this city, Philippi, where they were. But the Lord appeared to him in a dream, and he asked him to go to this specific city, to go to this specific region, And so what the apostle Paul had to do is he had to be willing to put down his agenda so he could pick up the assignment that God had for his life. He had to be willing to give up his plans and trust that his steps were gonna be ordered of the Lord. Scripture says that in his heart, a man plans his steps, but it's the Lord who orders his steps. In his heart, a man plans his way. He charts his course, but it's the Lord who ordains, who orders his steps. I don't know about you, but I would much rather have ordered steps than made plans. Made plans make sense before they happen. Ordered steps make sense after they've happened. And you look back and you see the faithfulness and the goodness and the consistency and the love of God. The apostle Paul had to stop what he was doing, put down his agenda and pick up the assignment that God had for his life. So he went to the region of Macedonia. He shows up to this city and he does exactly what God asked him to do. He's building the church. He's pouring into people, praying with people, building church leaders, preaching, seeing people saved, casting out demons and doing so in public so everybody could see. And look where it ended up with, look where he ended up. He ended up in the prison, in the inner cell. That's where it got him. He did exactly what God asked him to do and he ended up in the inner cell. Now the inner cell of their prison would have sat at a level lower than the other cells, which would have meant that the waste and the filth from all of the other cells would have drained down into the cell where the apostle Paul and Silas were chained in the stocks. That's where they were spending the night. That does not sound like a fun night out to me. Like, I don't know about you, but that doesn't sound enjoyable. To me, that sounds like they took a big L, right? That sounds like a massive loss. You ever noticed how sometimes doing exactly what God asks us to do will lead us to a place that looks and feels like loss? If you've never been there before, let me encourage you. Keep following Jesus and you will be. Because on this journey of faith, as great as it is, as fulfilling as it is, there will be moments where following Jesus leads us into a season that feels and looks an awful lot like loss. And not just to us, but also to the people around us. In fact, obedience at times will not look logical. It will not make sense. It's not gonna make sense to do what God asks us to do in certain moments. I would go as far as to say this, sometimes being obedient actually looks negligent. See, some people would say that doing a building project in the middle of what's going on in our nation is negligent. Now the Lord looked at it and said, you're being obedient. You're doing exactly what I've called this church to do. Let's look at the definition of negligence. Webster's definition of negligence is this. It's the failure to exercise the care that a reasonably prudent person would exercise in like circumstances. The failure to exercise the care that a reasonably prudent person would exercise in like circumstances. Obedience is not reasonable, but obedience is absolutely blessable. Obedience is not normal, it's not logical, but obedience is what produces a miracle in and through our lives. It's doing exactly what God asks us to do, regardless of what the opinions of other people are or what the statistics and facts may say. It's doing what God wants us to do. A while back, I was at a missions dinner where they were raising money to try and send missionaries all over the world. And I was sitting at this dinner and I just sensed that the Lord was speaking to me. And I felt like he was asking me to sell my car and give the money to missions. And as I'm sitting there, I'm thinking, Lord, is this really you speaking to me? Like, I'm hoping it's not. I'm like, Lord, is this really you speaking to me? He said, did I stutter? No, he, didn't say, he did not say that. He's kind, he is kind. But he confirmed it in my heart nonetheless that it was him speaking to me. And I said, okay, Lord, I I will do this. I made a bargain with God, which by the way, never make a bargain with God. It just doesn't pan out. I made a bargain with him. I said, Lord, I will do this, but I am really gonna need you to speak to my wife about this. Like I need you to confirm it in her heart, okay? Because we have a very comfortable couch at my house. I have no desire to sleep on it. You know what I mean? Like I enjoy sitting on it. I don't wanna sleep on it. Lord, I need you on my behalf to speak to her, please. I said, if I go to her and and she's cool with it and she feels like it's the Lord, I'm gonna take that as confirmation. And so I waited a few days, in case God wanted to change his mind, you know. (laughs) He usually doesn't. But I, I went to her and I said that, Lauren, I really feel like maybe we're supposed to sell the car and give the money to missions. And she said, if that's what God's telling you to do, then you have to do it. And so we sold the car. We gave the money to missions. We still needed another car so my family could have a car. So we had to do what I wouldn't advise anyone to do, but we had to take out a loan to get the new car. A friend of mine happens to be an executive at the company from which we took the loan out. So I know he probably knows more about my financial situation than I know about my financial situation. Like he knows more about my life than I know about my life. So now I'm starting to to play games in my mind and say, well, you know what? He probably knows that I shouldn't be taking out this loan to get this car. This probably looks irresponsible. It probably looks Negligent, but God had to remind me in that season that it does not matter what other people think when God has spoken to me. I'm not trying to get the approval of man. I am trying to get the approval of God. And if I please my God, I will end up pleasing all of the right people because it's God's approval that we need and it comes through obedience and obedience alone. So I had to be obedient and continue to move forward. Well, God started blessing us. He was generous to us. He gave us a good measure, pressed down, shaken together but I hadn't seen the running over part yet. I'm still waiting on that one. I went to my last preaching engagement of that season. It was a youth camp, my last service, my last event. I'm getting ready to walk up on stage. This guy, about 10 years younger than me, just walks up and starts pacing in front of me before I walk up on the stage. And I'm standing there thinking to myself, please, please don't talk to me right now, I'm in the zone. Like I'm praying, I'm, I'm getting ready to go. Sure enough, he stops. Hey, I don't mean to interrupt. I said, well, you just did. I don't mean to interrupt. But can, I didn't say that, but I thought it. He said, can I, can I talk to you? I said, sure. He said, uh, what's your Cash App name? I said, I don't really use Cash App. I don't, he said, what's your name? I said, look, bud, which by the way, if you just want to tick somebody off, just call him bud, right? That's just the ultimate disrespect. Like, like, I don't know what was going on, all right? The Lord was working on me. But I said, I said look, bud, um, I'm here to bless your church. I'm here to preach for you guys, to speak into your students' lives, to serve your youth pastor. Whatever you feel like you need to do, you don't need to do. He said, I have to do it. He said, what's your Cash App name? I gave him the name, he walked away. It was kind of awkward. I walk up on stage. As I'm going up on stage, I get a notification on my phone. That young man had just transferred into the thousands the exact amount of money that I had sold my car for and gave to missions just a few months earlier. He didn't know my story. He didn't know my sacrifice. He didn't know my history. He didn't know the word that I had heard from the Lord. But in that moment, God reminded me that if we will do what God asks us to do, God will do for us that which we could never do for ourselves. He will make a way where there seems to be no way. And it's not going to seem obvious. It might not seem logical. It might seem negligent. But if it's obedience, it is blessable by Almighty God. Many people encouraged the Apostle Paul not to go where he was going, but he said, I've got to go because people need to know Jesus. His commitment to Jesus compelled him to do what God was asking him to do. Landed him in the inner prison, in the stocks. And at about midnight, the Bible tells us that Paul and Silas start singing. This is how I fight my battles. It's like, come on Silas, you better sing. Don't let me sing alone. This is how I fight my battles. You all better help me because I cannot sing. This is how I fight my battles. And they're singing in the prison at midnight. That was their response. I don't know that that would have been mine, but that was theirs. How could that be their response? How could they respond that way? Here's how, because commitment helps us recognize resource. So they understood that the greatest resource they had was the worship that was within them. They understood the greatest weapon they had in that moment was the worship that could come out of their mouths. The Lord was depositing something into them. They understood that the only thing they had would be the only thing they would actually need to accomplish what God had sent them there to accomplish. See, the apostle Paul understood they were not waging war against flesh and blood, but they were waging war against the principalities, against the spirits that were at work in the heavenly realm. He understood that he had a weapon called worship and that the only resource they had would be the only one they would actually need. (laughs) Commitment helps us recognize resource. So rather than complaining about what we don't have, we use what we do have. Let me ask you this. How are we using what God has already given us? How are we using the resource we currently have? Not the resource we hope to get one day, Not the the job that we hope to land someday, not the opportunity or open door that we think is going to come our way or the finances or the health that we think is gonna come into our family at some point. How are we using the resources we already have? To me, that's a convicting question because if I answer it honestly, I usually find that I don't have a resource problem. I have an application problem. My whole family and I were on the longest ministry trip we had ever been on 18 days, our family was on the road in one hotel room. I had to invite Jesus back into my life multiple times on that trip, okay? Listen, my wife and I love our kids, but 18 days in one room, I needed Jesus. I'm still recovering, and that was a while back. All the parents are like, amen. We got back from this trip, I drove up to the house, we got the luggage inside, got the family inside, and I walked outside and I realized, While we were gone, my lawn had completely died. Like I'm talking, it was green before we left. It was brown when we came back. That thing had died while we were gone. So I walk out there and I just go out and stand on the side by the driveway in the street there and I'm just looking at it. I mean, I can't even really say anything. I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. I know this might surprise you, but I'm I'm not really an outdoorsman, right? So I don't really have the answers. So I'm like, man, huh. My neighbor walks out. Doesn't say anything, just walks out and stands next to me. <laughs> Literally, hasn't spoken yet, just stands there. Finally, he says, man, what happened to your lawn? <laughs> I said, well, it, it died, it's dead, <laughs> lawn's dead. He said, man, I gotta be honest with you. I've lived in this house for 15 years and I have never seen this lawn look this bad in all the years that I've lived here. At this point, I'm thinking to myself, no, he didn't. Like, no, he did not, right? I didn't say it out loud, but I'm thinking of it. Like, I'm offended at this point, which isn't saying much, isn't saying much because I'm a millennial. So I was offended before the conversation even started, right? Like I woke up offended, if I'm honest. Today, I'm offended right now. Like. So I'm offended naturally he says, what are you going to do? I said, I don't know, but I'm going to figure it out. He turns and walks back into his house. (laughs) Well, I'm frustrated to say the least, right? Because I'm already the younger guy on the block. Now I'm dead grass guy as well. And so I'm worried the neighbors are going to start talking about me, right? Wouldn't want that, right? And so I'm just like, what am I going to do? I'm frustrated. I know we've got an irrigation system because the people who lived here before us, they put it in. We've got all that stuff. What is going on? So I walk into my garage and there's this big control panel in the garage for the irrigation. And I I open it up and there's this big dial inside the box. And the dial was turned to this setting called off. (laughs) The entire summer, I thought that my lawn was being watered every single morning at 4.15 AM. And as it turns out, it was only being watered with the morning dew and the occasional rainstorm that would blow through our area. And that is the reason why our lawn ended up dying. It was so frustrating. Because we had the irrigation. We had the sprinkler systems that were strategically placed throughout the entire yard that were dispersing the water in an even manner across all of the grass. We had everything in place. The problem is not that we lacked what we needed. It's that we were not properly using what we already had. The problem was not a resource problem. It was an application problem. And that's not just true with my life or my lawn. I find that it's actually true with my life. I find this so often. I have everything I need to do, everything God's calling me to do. I just don't use it. I've got everything that he's wanting to give me to accomplish what he's calling me to do. I just don't use it. Listen, if God's calling you to do something in your life, I promise you, everything you have is everything you need to do exactly what God is calling you to do. That's why in the book of Judges chapter six, when the Lord spoke to Gideon, he said, go in the strength that you have. Second Kings chapter four, Elisha to the widow said, tell me, what do you have in the house? Luke chapter nine, Jesus to his disciples, when they're feeding 15,000 people, he said, you give them something to eat. And the 23rd Psalm, the Lord is my shepherd. I have everything that I need. I'm telling you, God will give us all we need to do everything we're called to do. It's who he is and that's what he does. He never fails. And some of you might say, pastor, that's, it's good rhetoric, it sounds good, but you don't understand, I don't, I don't have much to use. Listen, if you've got nothing to use, it means you have absolutely nothing to lose. So you might as well call it on the name of the Lord, believing that he will act on your behalf. First Samuel chapter 14 and verse six tells us, nothing can stop the Lord when he wants to move, regardless of how insurmountable it might be. Nothing can hinder the Lord from moving on our behalf or saving whether by many or by few, perhaps the Lord will work. They recognized what their resource was and they applied it. Scripture tells us that all the other prisoners in the prison, they were listening to them when they were worshiping. They were listening. Now, if you know biblical history at all, you know that the Bible was not written in English. It was written in Hebrew and Greek and Aramaic. And the, the Greek word there that was used to listen to describe the other prisoners, is this Greek word epichromai, which what it means is to actively listen. They weren't just overhearing the worship that was being sung. They were leaning in and listening to what they were singing, what they were praying. They were listening to understand. That's an abnormal response in a prison. Well, it's an abnormal response because they heard an unusual sound. See, an unusual sound gets an abnormal response from the people around us. Did you know that grace is an unusual sound in our culture right now? Mercy is an unusual sound in our culture right now. Love, hope, peace, patience, that's an unusual sound in our culture. What would it sound like around you if the sound coming off of your life was unusual and it was hope and it was peace and it was grace, it was mercy, it was love, it was patience, it was self-control. I think we would hear an abnormal sound all around us. People would say, what do you have that I need? You have something that I need. You know someone that I need to know. Listen, God has called this church to help people find and follow Jesus. That's only gonna happen if we're leading people to Jesus. It's gotta be a sound of hope exuding from our life. Prisoners were listening to understand. And the Bible tells us that as they're, they're singing, they're worshiping, the prisoners are listening that the, the ground begins to shake, that the earth literally begins to tremble. There was an earthquake that hit the prison. Dust begins to fall I imagine that wood beams started to break, metal was clanging together, the doors were breaking and swinging open. Everybody's chains were coming loose because there was an earthquake happening. Here's what you notice. All throughout scripture from Genesis to Revelation is that oftentimes a great move of God was either preceded or proceeded by an earthquake. Oftentimes when there was an earthquake, it meant that God had just moved or was about to move. I don't know if you realize this, but over the past two years, things have been drastically shaken up all around us. But even though things have been shaken up around us, our soul does not have to be shaken up within us. Because greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. And I really believe it's a sign that God is about to move. Because things are being shaken up, God is showing up, and he's on the move. He's bringing about revival. He's reaching more people. He's building his kingdom, and he's using us to do it. I love what the old preacher Charles Spurgeon said. He said that an earthquake does not have to mean a heartquake. What he meant to say is that even though everything can be shaken around us, our soul does not have to be shaken within us. As we know that God is good, that God is for us and that God is on the move. He never stops moving. He never stops working. So the prison was being shaken. Prison doors flew open, the warden came in, the warden was about to take his own life. He took his sword out and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. And the apostle Paul stops him and says, hey, don't take your your life. Don't kill yourself. We're all here. None of us have left. We're all still here. Why didn't they leave? Well, I think the other prisoners probably didn't leave because Paul and Silas didn't leave. Like by this point, they probably knew there's something strange about these two dudes. And they're like, if they're staying here, I'm staying here. Whatever it is, they're on to something, I'm staying here. But why didn't Paul and Silas leave? I think it's because they were so committed to what Jesus called them to do, that their commitment actually gave them clarity about the miracle that was taking place right in front of them. So if you're taking notes, write that down. The commitment gives us clarity. The commitment will give us clarity about what God is doing and why he's doing it. See, a casually interested person, they stick around long enough to see what God does. A deeply committed person, they stay there long enough to see why God's doing what he's doing. What is he actually trying to accomplish in this place? So they had clarity about the miracle. And as they're standing there in the prison, telling this jailer not to take his own life, they understood that their chains falling off, that was the preliminary miracle. Their freedom was the preliminary miracle. But the jailer's freedom and the freedom of his household, that was the primary miracle. Their freedom, that was what God wanted to do to set up the miracle that he was actually trying to do, which was save an entire household of people. Their freedom, that was preliminary. The jailer's miracle was primary. And they had the clarity to see it because there was commitment in their hearts. They were more interested in reaching the jailer than they were with reaching the exit. So they stayed put. They were so deeply committed to what God was doing that they didn't go anywhere. Would you stand to your feet all over this place? They saw the situation different because they were committed. Truth is, Paul and Silas, they never should have been in the prison. See, they were Roman citizens, or at least Paul was, and all he would have had to do is say one Latin phrase, civis Romanus sum, and they would have had to immediately release him and send him on his way because he was a Roman citizen. They would have had to have given him a trial at least before ever putting him in jail. But he decided not to say anything. He kept his mouth shut because he knew that God had him there for a reason. Imagine having something to say but not opening your mouth to say it because you know that God can do more in your silence than he could if you spoke something out. Think of our culture needs to learn something right right now is that sometimes God does more with our silence than he does with our words. I do think there is a time to speak, but there's also a time to listen. There's a time to be quiet and let God do what he wants to do without our narrative getting in the way. Without our commentary. So they stayed silent because they were so committed to what God was doing there. When I was a freshman in high school, or college actually, playing at Central Bible College, and I set the record for most water bottles passed down the bench and most towels handed to the starters. It's true. Hardly ever got in the game, like never. But every game, regardless of how far it was, if it was in the region, three, four, five hours, my parents would drive to the game. They would drive to the game literally to watch me go through warmups. Like at that point, it's almost more embarrassing than anything. I'm like, mom, dad, you don't have to keep coming to these games. I'm literally gonna make like six layups and warmups and then pass 30 water bottles throughout the game. Like you don't have to come, but they continue to come every single game. And I did not understand it then, but I absolutely understand it now that my parents were not showing up to those games because they wanted to see my performance. And they knew I wasn't gonna play. They thought, yeah, if you get in, that'd be awesome but they weren't showing up to the game to see my performance. The primary reason for showing up to the game was so that I felt their presence, was so that I knew they were there. I knew that they were committed. See, they were not committed to my ability. They were committed to my identity. They were committed to who I was. I was their son, I was their boy, I was their child. And if they had any opportunity to be around me when I was doing something I was passionate about, they wanted to do it because they looked at me with a different level of commitment even than I looked at myself. They saw me in a different lens. And as great of an example as a parent or a pastor or a leader is, the greatest example that we've ever seen is Jesus Christ himself. Because when Jesus hung on the cross, it was commitment that kept him there. Jesus didn't just see fishermen, he saw apostles because he looked at them through the eyes of commitment. Jesus didn't just see a tax collector, he saw a biblical author. Jesus didn't see wasted perfume, he saw worship that was being poured out on his feet. Jesus did not just see a crook on the cross, he saw a criminal that would one day end up in eternity with him. And Jesus didn't just see a Christian killer. He saw the greatest disciple, the most influential disciple that there ever would be. As he looked at the apostle Paul with the eyes of commitment and he looks at every single one of us through the eyes of commitment and commitment sees things differently. I'm gonna invite the prayer team to join me at the front. Because I really believe that there are some of us in this room who desperately need to make a commitment to follow Jesus today. We need to make a decision to follow Jesus. We know we've not been committed with our life at all. Maybe we've never had a relationship with Jesus or it's been a really long time since we've had one. And maybe there are others of us in the room who we just know that we need to have a deeper level of commitment to the things of God. We need to have a deeper level of commitment to what God's doing and building the church and reaching people in the community. Maybe for others of us, we desperately need a miracle. Listen, I really believe there are people in this room who need a healing touch, and the only person who can give that to you is Jesus. We are grateful for doctors. We are grateful for physicians. God uses them, and he can use them to be a part of the healing process, absolutely. But we still believe that Jesus is the great physician, and he can bring the healing in a moment that some of us might not be able to find in a lifetime anywhere else. Bow your heads, close your eyes all over this place. We're gonna pray a prayer inviting Jesus into our heart. And then I'm gonna open up these altars. I'm gonna invite you to worship with us. If you're in this place and you know that the level of commitment that you've had to Jesus has been non-existent. Maybe you don't have a relationship with him. Maybe you've never had one, or it's been a really long time. If you're in this place and you wanna begin a new relationship with Jesus, I'm gonna ask you to raise your hand right now all across this place. You wanna begin a new relationship with Jesus. That's awesome, that's awesome, I see it. That's awesome, that's awesome. Anybody else want to begin a renew relationship with Jesus? That's awesome, that's awesome, that's awesome. I see it, that's awesome, that's awesome. Anybody else? Awesome, I see it. You can put your hand down, anybody else? I'm gonna have you repeat a prayer after me, the whole room, because we believe these moments are done best in the context of community. Understand this, Jesus loves you as much as anyone he's ever had to love. You're as important to God as anyone who's ever lived. And if you'd have been the only one that sinned, Jesus would have come and died just for you. But the truth is our sins separated us from God. So Jesus did have to come and pay the price for our sins so that we could be in a right relationship with Jesus and with our heavenly father. But he paid the price for you. He died on the cross, but walked out of that grave after three days, defeating death, hell and the grave so we could have new life in Christ. Would you repeat after me all over this place? Say, dear Jesus, come into my life. Forgive my sins, change my heart, change my mind, change my direction. I wanna be a follower of you all the days of my life. Give me wisdom, give me strength. Help me live the life I was always meant to live. In Jesus' name amen. And right now we're going to open up these altars. If you need prayer, come find someone to pray with you right now, because I believe there are miracles in the house. I believe there are levels of commitment that need to be turned up. I believe there are challenges that God wants to put on your heart. You're not going to be able to do it alone. You desperately need people around you and the Holy Spirit speaking to you. Would you worship with us if you can?